for those who went to prom last night and are here today, um, particularly my daughter, who's the only one probably, but uh, yeah, anyway, so as Kaylin is here, you can all just watch her to see if she falls asleep today. Not to draw attention to her in any way, shape, or form, but <laughs> I didn't tell her I was going to do that. Yeah, right. If I, if I share a lot of stories mentioning her name just to keep her awake. But no, I, uh, one of the reasons that I've always done that with my kids is because I'm a cruel father, but also because, we, you know, we really do believe in that the importance of the gathering together of the body of Christ is important, and too many other things in our lives slip in there and just take the place of us gathered together. And, uh, and so I, I just uh, am grateful for uh, every time we all prioritize this together. And you're here on this horrible rainy day because you care about the body of Christ gathered together and the public proclamation of God's word and the corporate worship of him together. And so it is really important that you are here today doing this together. Okay, Genesis 41. So the Bible is primarily a book about God. Sometimes, like that seems obvious, but sometimes we miss that because we tend to make the Bible about the character's in the Bible about which we're reading. And so sometimes uh, we should, all the time, we should read the Bible this way. First, we should ask, what does this teach us about God and who he is? The second question we should ask then is, once we learn something about God, how should we interact with that? So the first question is always, what do we learn about God? The second question is, how do we interact with the God that we just learned about. The problem is many times the temptation is to get this reversed. We ask, what does the Bible say to me first? And what that looks like is oftentimes we emulate the people in the Bible rather than the God of the Bible. Let me give you a great example of this. You all are probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? I mean, here's this little boy who slays this giant, um, when we skip the question, what does this teach us about God? Here's the application we get. There are giants in all of our lives. And you need to have the courage to slay the giants in your life. If you have ever taken that application from the book of Samuel, when he, the story of David and Goliath happens, you have precisely taken the absolute wrong application from the, the story. Because the story of David and Goliath has nothing to do with David's courage. It has nothing to do with him looking deep inside himself. It has everything to do with God's sovereign power over all the other so-called gods of this world. And so the true application is not that you could ever have the courage to look inside yourself, but rather you could find in God the strength to do whatever comes in front of you. And so we do this all the time. The problem is when we get things out of order, we have come across stories in the Bible which if we directly apply those characters to our lives, we run into some really weird situations. Uh, one of my favorite sto stories in the Bible is, uh, is this account in 2 Kings of the story of Elisha. One day Elisha is walking down the road and some teenagers come out of the woods and they see him in there and they start making fun of him because he's bald right? And so they're like laughing at him because he's bald and all of a sudden bears come out of the forest and eat the teenagers. And they're gone. Well, what do we do with that if we're just going to apply that directly? I tell you what, be very careful what you say to bald people. Like, right? Right? right like, woof. I'm getting there. See, we have to be careful how we apply the text of scripture because 
always, we want to first say, what does this teach us about God? Then secondly, we say, what is this, what do I learn about how I interact with this God? If we simply seek to emulate the biblical characters, we're missing the whole point of the text. It would be like gazing on what I think is probably the most famous painting in the world here, the Mona Lisa. And it would be like gazing at this picture and then only walking away with the fact that I feel like she's staring at me, right? Like everywhere I go, she's looking at me. If that's all you get out of this painting, you have missed some major things. And when we look at the Bible and only focus on the characters in the Bible, we miss the bigger picture about what is going on. And so such is the danger in front of us today when we come to this text. Because if we seek to emulate the life of Joseph— or if we seek to avoid the behavior of maybe Pharaoh or someone else, you and I risk missing the bigger picture. It doesn't mean that there aren't behaviors that we might want to emulate in the Bible. Like when Joseph, a few weeks back, ran into Potiphar's wife, who was tempting him, and he ran from temptation. Like, that's something that's honorable and admirable. But we just have to be careful about how we arrive and apply text to our lives. So all that, all that comes to say with this question right here. How do I interact with the God of the text today? Throughout this entire series in Joseph, we, we've really been looking at one big idea that we're looking at over and over and over again from different aspects. Because this is the big idea for the entire series of Joseph, that God's sovereign hand is working through our bad decisions and evil plans to accomplish his will. And his will is always for our good and his glory. His, this is every text points to this idea. And just like Doug read earlier, right out of Genesis 50, 20, as for you, Joseph says this at the end of the story, we'll come to this in, in about a month. He says this at the end of the story. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God's sovereign hand is working through our bad decision and evil plans to accomplish what's for our good and his glory. And this is the idea of this whole thing. And when we start with God, the sovereign hand of God, when we start here, the question then is how do you and I interact with this sovereign God? How do we interact with this God? What's our role when, when God has a sovereign hand? What do we do? And so we're going to see exactly how this sovereign hand works itself out in Joseph's life. And now Joseph is exactly where he needs to be in order to save his family, in order to save future generations of God's people that don't even exist yet at this time. God, is, his sovereign hand is placing Joseph right here. So if you remember in the story of Joseph over the last month or so we've been looking at, quickly just to bring you up to speed, Joseph uh, did some things that made his brothers hate him. And so his brothers sold him as a slave to Egypt. Joseph ran down to Egypt where he was sold into the house of Potiphar. He became the head servant in Potiphar's household. Things were looking up for Joseph until Potiphar's wife tempted him. She seduced him. He stayed pure. He ran from her. That got him thrown into jail. Through the ranks, he rose. Through the ranks, he became the chief prisoner of all the prisoners in jail. And then what we looked at last week, we ended 
with this, this story of, of Joseph interpreting some dreams of some officials. And Joseph said to them, hey, okay, when you get back to Pharaoh's court, don't forget about me. Tell Pharaoh about me. And we ended with last week with this simple verse in ch- chapter 40, 23. I told you last week we ended on a low point. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And that's where we left it last week, at this low point. Like all this stuff had happened to Joseph, and now he gets forgotten again. Today, we're going to pick up our text in chapter 41. And when it opens, we see that two years have passed since Joseph was forgotten. It's been about a dozen years since Joseph was sold into slavery. It's been a long time that he's been going through this process. And what we're going to see today is that we're going to learn some things about Joseph's life, about how we should respond to the sovereign hand of God. Because we've seen that the text points us to God's hand is sovereign, and it's always working in our lives. Now the question is, how do people respond to this? We're going to see some good ways that people respond and some bad ways that people respond. And so the first thing I want to talk to you about, I really have three things that I want to talk to you about from the text today from Genesis 41. How does this world respond to the sovereign hand of God? And we know the first thing we learn is that the world is blind to God's sovereign hand. This is one of those things that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should just know. You should just know about the world around you and how you interact, that people in this world are generally blind to how God's sovereign hand is working. How does this world, those who don't know Christ, interact with God's sovereign hand? Well, they're just unaware of it. They're oblivious to it. Other than those, think about it. Other than the reference that people have to generally a higher power, or when they see events unfolding, they don't understand, they go, well, I guess it's fate. Those are kind of words that the world uses to try to talk about the sovereign hand of God working in our lives for our good and his glory. Other than a higher power or fate, the world is very oblivious to what God is doing. In the Egyptian culture of the second millennium BC, I mean, we're talking a long time ago, uh, this kind of blindness took the form of an inability to interpret the dreams that had been given to them. We, we run across this right away in our text today. Uh, we, we, look, we look here in the story and we see that said, when two years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. This is actually a series of two dreams that Pharaoh had. And these, these dreams are bizarre. Pharaoh doesn't understand what's going on. The first dream is this. He's standing by the Nile, Pharaoh dreams. Seven huge, fat, delicious looking cows. You're like, that's the cow that I want to barbecue, right? Like, that's the one. Uh, I want to put that on the grill. Okay, these huge cows come up out of the Nile. The Nile is a source of power to the Egyptians. This is where the lifeblood of Egypt came from was the Nile River. These seven fat cows come up, and they're hanging out. And then after them, seven scrawny, skinny, ugly cows come up, and they eat the fat cows. Boom. And then, and then when they're all done, they still look as skinny as they looked before. And, Joseph, and, and the Pharaoh wakes up, and he scratches his head and goes, that was weird. And he goes back to sleep, and he has a similar dream. Now he's in a field, and seven heads of grain are growing on a single stalk. And these are beautiful, ripe, great heads of grain. They're awesome. And then all of a sudden, seven skinny, 
burnt ones come up and they eat up the big ones and it's done. And the Pharaoh wakes up and he's troubled by in this. He says, okay, I had two dreams tonight. Something's going on here. I remember I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Dreams in Egyptian culture were, an, uh, were seen as an attempt by the other world, the, the afterlife, as it were, to speak into this world. And so, so there was a whole science that developed around dream interpretation. So Pharaoh gathers all his best dream interpreters together, and he's clearly troubled by this. Look at verse 41, chapter 41, verse 8. He says this, he's, uh, the text says, in the morning his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians that's a technical word in Egyptian culture. It just means dream interpreters. Um, and wise men of Egypt, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. They had these books where all dream symbols were written down. And no one had ever come across dreams like this. No one knew what was going on. No one has any idea what it is. is. No one has any idea that the one true God is involved in this. And no one has any idea that God is working to accomplish something bigger. No one has any idea that God's sovereign hand is at work. And so we see Pharaoh left head scratching, completely blind to what God is doing. And what was more disturbing to Pharaoh was this idea that both of these dreams had to do with the Nile River. In agriculture in Iowa, we rely on days like today, once the crops are in the ground, to, to water the crops and to, to bring those seeds up. And, but in Egyptian culture, they didn't rely on rain. They relied on the yearly flooding of the Nile River. The Nile would flood every year. They had a, a system of irrigation things that were dug to take the water from the flooded Nile out and water all their crops. It was a, actually a more reliable system than just trying to wait on the rain because they knew when the Nile flooded every single year and they were able to do it. This was the lifeblood of Egypt. So for both of these dreams to have to do with their agriculture and, and that was fed by the Nile and these cows coming up out of the Nile, this was a big deal for Pharaoh and he didn't know what was going on. He's completely blind to this. He's clueless as to what it is. It's like for you and I, if you ever watch rugby for the first time, if you ever watched rugby and all you ever knew was American football, right? You look at rugby and go, I, I don't get this. Like, why, he just scored a touchdown. Why does he keep running? Like, why doesn't he just stop? But he keeps running. Or why are they hugging all the time? Like, I don't understand this. They keep hugging in rugby. What's that about? Like, if you look at rugby, you have no idea what's going on. That's what Pharaoh is walking into this situation with. He has a dream that he just can't interpret. Such is this world when it comes to understanding the sovereignty of God. Words like fate come into play. There's a lack of the bigger picture of understanding what God's sovereign hand is doing. You see, the Christian knows what God's hand is doing. The Christian understands how God's hand is working. We live, we, Christian knows that currently we live in the kingdom of a defeated Satan. And we're in enemy territory. And while he's defeated, he's still rearing his ugly head. But God is taking back his kingdom. And God's sovereign hand is moving in our lives. And he's positioning us for maximum impact for the kingdom of God. So we see everything as a Christian, everything in light of this continual and 
and plotting moving victory over the kingdom of darkness. We have an ever-increasing awareness that even in the darkest moments, God's hand is always working to vanquish evil, to stop pain, to reverse the effects and ravages of sin on this world. Everything as a Christian that we do matters. We're not blind to it, but the world is. The world we live in is oblivious to this. They, they may have glimpses of awareness from time to time, but overall, many would describe life as meaningless. Paul puts it this way in the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, which is in the image of God. Who is the image of God? So Paul is describing what we see every day, that people around us have been blinded by the God of this world, Satan, so that they can't see what God is doing. It, there's a lot of songs, I think, in, in our lives and lyrics to songs. Lyrics to songs capture, I think, what, what a lot of our culture grabs onto and tries to interpret. And if the world is blind to the sovereign hand of God, life kind of feels meaningless. Uh, about 15 to 20 years ago, uh, I, I remember distinctly when this band, Linkin Park, re released a song in the end. And maybe some of you remember this song, but here's the a, here's a line from it. They, they said, I tried so hard and got so far, and in the end, it doesn't even matter. I had to fall to lose it all in the end. It doesn't even matter. I remember as a youth pastor, I had students singing this song. I'm like, what are you doing? Stop that. Like, this is a blindness to the sovereign hand of God moving. The world is blind to this. How, how do people respond to the sovereignty of God? Well, one is with blindness, the world around us. Friends, sometimes you and I might get tempted to get sucked into this. Get sucked into a blindness to the sovereign hand of God in our lives. But don't do it because we know better. And that leads us to the second thing I want to tell you today is that God uses his people to reveal his sovereign hand. If the world is blind to the sovereign hand of God around us, God is using his people. If you're a believer in Christ, that includes you and me. He's using his people to reveal his sovereign hand. We see this working as God used Joseph to reveal his sovereign hand to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. The story continues in the text. Pharaoh is all distraught, and he's got his dream scientists around, and they can't figure it out. And so all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the cupbearer slaps himself. Oh, I'm such an idiot, he says. He says, Pharaoh, I can't believe I forgot this. Oh, remember when you threw me in jail a few years back? Try, try not to remember too hard, but uh, you, you know, you got mad at me and threw me in jail, right? Remember when you threw me in jail, he says, there was this young Hebrew slave. I had this dream and this Hebrew slave interpreted it. He did one for me and for the baker and it turned out exactly like this young Hebrew said. And so Pharaoh goes, okay, I want to talk to this guy. So all of a sudden, we get a glimpse of how God has been transforming evil and sovereignly using it for his good. Because Joseph was in the right place at the right time to interpret the cupbearer's dream, and now he's in the right place at the right time to interpret Pharaoh's dream. It has been about a dozen years on this journey since he got sold into slavery. Every time Joseph thought he was making progress, he didn't. And yet, 
right now, Joseph is in the perfect place. The perfect place. All of a sudden, we get this glimpse. God is transforming evil. And God's going to use Joseph as part of his sovereignty to Pharaoh. So Joseph goes before Pharaoh. He gets himself all cleaned up. He presents himself honorably to Pharaoh. And and look what happens in verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one could interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Look Look what Joseph says. I mean, this is Joseph's opportunity, right? He goes, well, Pharaoh, (laughs) you know, it's been your loss that you haven't known I was in jail. And boy, look at all the stuff you missed out on because I am awesome. No, look what he says. I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. This is the simple moment when Joseph reveals to Pharaoh that it is God's hand who is working sovereignly in this situation. Joseph is not a dream interpreter. He hasn't studied the arts. He hasn't read the Egyptian cipher books. He's unable. He couldn't boast. It's not him. Joseph had no expertise in dream interpretation. But God gave him the interpretation. So Pharaoh retells the dream, and in a second retelling, if you were to read the text here with me today, Joe, uh, the Pharaoh gives some commentary. He elaborates. He calls these seven skinny cows the ugliest things he's ever seen in his life. Like, I mean, he, he elaborates in the story a little bit and in his interpretation of these dreams. But he tells them both, the, both two dreams to Joseph, and then Joseph reveals what God is doing. I want to read a section of the text here. Look at this with me. Verse 25. So we've, we've now heard in the text two tellings of these dreams. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh, he says, are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven goods head of, head of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. There are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows is so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. And God will do it. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Then Joseph takes another bold measure as the text continues. He says, and and now Joseph, I think, is talking through what he thinks, through his wisdom, through his patience, through his Uh, years of walking with God in some really hard times, he's got a wisdom about him. And and Joseph uh, proposes this. He says, let's tax everyone 20% for the next seven years. 20% of every grain that's harvested in the land of Egypt we'll take and we'll store it. And then our grain bins will be overflowing, he says, 
And after seven years, when the famine hits, we'll have enough grain to survive the next seven when crops aren't doing so well. In the darkness of Egypt, far from the one true God, lost in idol worship and in horrible practices, God has chosen his servant Joseph to be a light, to reveal the sovereign hand of God. Friends, and of course, of course, of course, of course, this points us to another person because thousands of years later, God would do it again. And this time he would send his son, Jesus. This time God would do it himself. He'd take the form of a human being. He would come to us. And Jesus would be the light of the sovereign hand of God in a dark, dark, dark world. And that light pierced the darkness. And Jesus then would defeat the darkness, spreading out his arms on the cross, dying, giving up his life, rising from the dead, defeating the enemy. You see, God's always trying to reveal his sovereign hand to this world. He uses his people to reveal his sovereign hand. He did it with Joseph. He showed us how in Jesus. He did it with the apostles who took the light of Christ to the world. And now he wants to do it with you and me. You and I, just like Joseph, get to be a tool to reveal the sovereign hand of the world around us. We're uniquely positioned to reveal God's sovereign hand. It is not an accident that you live where you live, that where you work where you work, where you have breakfast where you have breakfast, where you go out to eat. It's not an accident. God is placing you in a position just like Joseph. It doesn't matter how hard your life has been. It doesn't matter if things didn't work out like you wanted them to work. God has you right now where he wants you because you get to reveal to the world the sovereign hand of God. There's no mistake. You're going to run into someone this week. Maybe today, tomorrow, you're going to run into someone somewhere who desperately needs to sh you to show them how the sovereign hand of God is at work. I just ran into a guy this week. I was having lunch with a friend, and this guy, my friend knew, he sat down and starts telling me his life story and just some really painful stuff that's going on for this guy right now. You know what I did? I said, I don't know how you think about this, but because I didn't really know anything about him. W would you mind if I prayed with you? You know, and you know, worse that happens, he'll go, no thanks, that's weird. I don't want to do that. All right. I never experienced someone who did that to me. You're weird. I'm not praying. He goes, oh, that would be so meaningful. Sat down, put my hand on him, prayed for him, and in that moment, got to speak about the sovereign hand of God and praying that God would reveal his sovereign hand. And in a few moments over the next half hour, as, as he just talked and listened, got to say, I get to be a tool of the hands, the sovereign hand of God. You know what? It's not hard. It takes courage at times. But there are people all around you that you and I interact with. Sometimes it's just a matter of saying, can I pray with you? Sometimes it's a matter of, of just being hope to someone, that there's a bigger purpose. Joseph, I mean, 12, 13 years of horrible circumstances, and he's just waiting for the moment when God uses him to reveal his sovereign hand in Joseph's life. When, when we're working with someone 
we do have to be careful how we talk about the sovereign hand of God. What, what's not helpful is if we do what Joseph did, right? God has not necessarily equipped you as a dream interpreter like he did Joseph, right? Uh, it's not helpful for you to walk into someone's life and go, well, I know exactly why you're suffering. It, you're suffering because you sinned when you were seven and God's out to get you, right? It's not helpful for us to say things like that. It's not helpful for us to go, oh, I know exactly what God is doing. That is not our role. Our role is to bring the hope of the gospel to a situation. Our role is to bring hope that God's sovereign hand is working for his glory, for our good. It all weaves together. How should we respond to this movement of God's sovereign hand? Well, we've got to know that the world's blind. Second thing is we, we've, we've got to look for opportunities to reveal God's sovereign hand. And the third thing we run into today is we have to remember that our success is not the purpose of God's sovereign hand. Our success is not the purpose of God's sovereign hand. We're going to see that things work out pretty well for Joseph right now in just a minute. And it might be tempting for you and I to go, oh, awesome. So all I got to do is put up with some really bad stuff. And in the end, I'm going to have everything I ever wanted. If you take that from this story of Joseph, you have missed something about what God is doing in our lives. So Pharaoh recognizes this hand of God on Joseph. Look at verse 37. And, and now Pharaoh says, uh, now Joseph says, uh, excuse me, Joseph gives his interpretation and then tells him this plan about taxing everyone and saving up. And so in verse 37, Pharaoh says this, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, Joseph, one in whom the spirit of God rests? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all the world known to you, since uh, all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So all of a sudden we see that, that Pharaoh recognizes that God has his hand on Joseph's life, and he puts him in charge of his palace and everything in it. And sometime later, he eventually makes Joseph the vice president, so to speak, or the secretary of agriculture, I don't know what you want to call it, but of the, of the country. And in verse 41, look what he says. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, he go, you know, there's, there's a little bit of time gap here. Jo Pharaoh made Joseph head of his entire palace. Now he's ready to do more. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, 41, I put you in charge of the, I am putting you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So Joseph gets elevated to basically be in charge of the whole country. Pharaoh gives him some really important things here, things that we wouldn't care about, but they're important in Egyptian culture. The first thing Pharaoh hands to him, he takes his ring off his finger and he gives it to Joseph. Why does he do this? Well, when our legislators pass laws, they sign them, right? But that's not how they did it in Egypt. There was a signet ring that they would put wax on. They would seal it. So basically, in giving his ring to Joseph, he's saying, I give you my power. In my name, you can pass any law you want. That's how much power he's given him. The next thing he gives him is royal robes. Here we go again with Joseph in robes. They keep getting him in trouble, right? But in this time, it's flipped, and all of a sudden, this robe is now a position or a symbol of his power. 
He gives a golden chain to him. He gives him a chariot. Joseph gets a chariot with secret service agents. Like, big deal, right? They're running around town. He's got the guy with glasses and guns. It's awesome. And then lastly, he gets a wife from the most prestigious family in Egypt. And, and things seem to be working out well for Joseph. During the seven years of plenty, the text continues, he stockpiles wealth. The bins are overflowing with grain. You measured wealth in ancient Egypt in terms of commodities, not money. And so the, the bins of Egypt are overflowing with grain. He has sons during this time, which is a sign of prestige. And then during the seven years of famine, Joseph's power increases. He gets power in Egypt the text tells us eventually the Egyptians during the famine used up all their own wealth. They used up all their own storage of grain that they had stored up. They, their crops were floundering. They had nothing left. So they took whatever money they went and they bought grain from the government. And then when they were out of money and they didn't have any money left, they went and they sold their land to the government to survive. So now Joseph has control over this country. But the text tells us more. Joseph doesn't just have power over the nation of Egypt. The entire world starts coming to Egypt because they say, hey, Egypt prepared for this famine. They've got grain. The whole world started coming to Egypt. And Joseph has power in the whole world. Joseph has arrived. 14 years now, things have been going pretty good. And the question we have to ask here is, if God's sovereign hand is working like it was in Joseph's life, Will I be successful? I mean, let's be honest. For, for Dave Brooks, I don't have to be vice president of the United States to feel successful, right? Like, I'd be fine with just an easy life. God, could I just have an easy life? That would be great, fantastic. Well, remember I talked about at the beginning of uh, the message today, the danger of cherry picking this kind of application. The problem with viewing success like this is that if we believe in God's sovereign hand, then we'll be successful. The problem with it is this. If we're not successful, then we tend to believe God's not sovereign. Or if we have too much success, we tend to, as human beings, go, yeah, I don't need God anyway. And it's a dangerous application. Our lack of success or our success is not the point of God's sovereign hand. As believers, our lives are not about our comfort. They are about our role as agents in the sovereign hand of God. So we are about a good God, not his good gifts. Everything that Joseph had experienced here is necessary for the movement of God's sovereign hand. All the bad stuff, all the good stuff. You see, we think, you know, like, I, if I was Joseph, you know... I could put up with the 12 or so really bad years if I knew 14 really good years were coming. I mean, you, you and I would think that, right? We could think, I could do that. Well, first of all, the problem is Joseph had no idea about any of that. But second of all, the problem is it misses the point. See, Joseph, in the 12 years, knows the living God, and he's come to the point where he realizes that his failure or his success are not a sign of God's sovereign hand, but rather part of it. The part of it. Look at verse 57. The very last verse in our text for today. We begin to get this sense. All and all the countries 
came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in the world. All of the countries is going to include Joseph's 11 brothers that sold him into slavery, who we're going to see in the next few weeks are coming to Joseph in Egypt. You see, the point is not about Joseph's success. The point is the saving of God's people. We circle back to the beginning. What does this text reveal about God? And how do I interact with this God? Well, I think we can ask a few questions that are helpful to us, just real quick. First one, are you blind to God's sovereign hand? If you're here today and, and you don't have a faith in Christ Jesus, we're so glad you're here with us today. If you don't believe in Christ, you're missing out on this beautiful picture of the way God's sovereign hand is working things together in this world. And, and there's this, this beautiful moment where you too can, in repentance, find forgiveness, full forgiveness in the blood of Christ. But sometimes as those who are believers, sometimes we turn off our minds and we are blind just like this world is to God's sovereign hand. Either we get angry with God or frustrated or are so surrounded in our difficulties and troubles that we fail to recognize that maybe God is using our difficult things to accomplish something greater than we can know. And we may never know. We may never know. Sometimes we lose sight of that. So are you blind to God's hand? Of course, the second question that I want to ask you today in application is, where does God want to use you to reveal his sovereign hand? Somewhere, sometime this week, you're going to be with somebody. How's God going to use you in that person's life? Maybe you already know who it is. You're sitting here today, you go, I know who it is, exactly. Maybe you don't. You're just going to have your spiritual radar up and go, God, how do you want to use me this week? And then the third thing that I want you to dwell on today is, do you really believe that your life is part of God's sovereign hand? Just the way it is. Just the way it is that you too are part of his sovereign hand. Because God's sovereign hand is always working through our bad decisions and evil plans to accomplish his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the truth and the beauty of God's sovereign hand over us. His hand is always working. Our worship team is going to come as I pray, and, and they're going to sing a song, and I invite you in the song to stay seated. Um, you don't know this song, and so just listen. If you do know it, you're feel, the words will be up there. You can sing along, but allow the truth of this music to wash over you as you engage with this truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today desperately wanting to grow in our understanding of your sovereign hand. We desperately want you to use us to reveal your sovereign hand just as you did in ancient times. You still do that for our lives. And in whatever period and whatever time, God, we lay this before you. In Jesus' name, amen.